0: your Bibles. Open it to Psalm 51. The psalm's going to sound familiar to you if you've never read it. Uh, it's going to sound familiar to you only because we just sang a song that pretty much comes right from uh, the verses at the end of this song. And if you have read it, it's probably going to sound familiar to you anyway because it's, you know, it's a song that's referred to quite often. It's taught about quite often. And it's um, I love the fact that we're going through the Psalms the way they are and Pastor Joe is going through 1st and 2nd Samuel on Wednesdays and a lot of times they parallel one another or he'll teach something through the the, uh, Old Testament and the Psalms will just go right along with it. Well, this Psalm is Uh, from 2 Samuel 11, which we haven't gotten to yet in Pastor Joe's teaching in Wednesdays, But when we do, you're going to have a good perspective on what David was feeling at that time, or or really after that, because this is about his repentance. But you're going to get a sense of what he went through and what caused this psalm to be written. So, again, it's uh, directly attributed to the account in 2 Samuel 11, and David's sin with Bathsheba. It says it right in the the title. But it's when Nathan the prophet comes to David and he confronts him with his sin. It's not immediately following the sin uh, that he committed with Bathsheba. But it speaks about true repentance. It speaks about... All of the elements that have to do with true repentance. Now, when, you, when someone mentions repentance, a lot of times people will just think, well, it's sorrow over sin. And that is a part of it. But sometimes people are, are sorrowful over their sin because they've gotten caught, not because there's true repentance to it. Repentance has other, a lot of different elements to it. Repentance includes shame and guilt and confession, and sorrow, and prayer for mercy. All of those elements are included in what true repentance really is. And in addition to all of those elements, a desire to change. Because repentance means to change course. It's like to make a 180. You're going in one direction, and now through true, heartfelt, honest repentance, you change course and you go in another direction. Something has to cause you to do that. Something in your heart and in your mind has to cause you to desire to change course. Because, truthfully, sin is very attractive. And that's why we so easily fall into it, no matter what the sin is. So since it is so attractive, something needs to happen in our hearts to cause us to to turn from that and not go back. That's what true repentance really is. All of the attributes of repentance are motivated by a love for God and a trust in His forgiveness and His restoration. Because, honestly, it's our broken relationship with God that should cause us the most sorrow over our sin. It's that separation where it says in the in the, in the Old Testament that your sin your iniquity has separated you from God that separation should cause us the most sorrow so and it also includes a renewed passion for the things of God and a desire to be led and empowered by the Spirit you see because truthfully we can't do that change of direction apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit it's only Him working in us that's going to allow us to desire to have the, to, to, for the things of God and to turn away from our sin and to turn toward God. And, like all of the psalms, we can relate. Now, hopefully we can't relate exactly in the way that David is speaking about in this particular psalm and the, and the sin that he's sorrowful because this is the sin of of uh, this, is, this is pretty bad, this thing with Bathsheba. And it included murder. So, so the sin was, was, pretty, was pretty serious. Hopefully we won't ever have that type of thing in our lives. But even if we don't, we can relate to what David is going through because we still have that separation from God. So beginning you know, in verse 1 with the title in verse 1, to the chief musician, a son of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. So here, David is, is addressing his sin to the one who can do something about it, God. And he's addressing it in his prayer for forgiveness by identifying God's character. See, God's character is what's what's important, is the only necessary thing that allows God to forgive us. See, He has a forgiving character. It's His nature. His loving kindness is deep. His forgiveness is wide. And His tender mercies are innumerable. How much we need those characteristics when we... Go before God with our sin. And David begins this prayer of repentance by going to God and saying, God, have mercy on me. I know your character, God. I know you're loving. I know you're merciful. I need you to apply that to my life, David is saying, because of what I've done. And then David refers to the threefold nature of his sin. He says, blot out my transgressions. Now, transgressions is translated pesha or rebellion, in the, in, the, um, in the Hebrew. Rebellion. Sin always includes rebelling against God. It includes going our own way. That's what rebellion is. We know God's law. We know what God wants. And yet we rebel, and we turn, and we go the other way. So David's saying, blot out my transgressions. Take away my rebellion. And he's saying in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity in the Hebrew, avon. It's perversity or depravity. Sin. Sin is always a perversion of what we're supposed to be. See, we were created for a relationship with God. We were created to be holy as He is holy. We, are, we were created for that relationship to walk with God. And so what is sin but a perversion of what we were made to be? God made us to be in fellowship with Him. Sin breaks that fellowship. So that's what that word iniquity means. It means a perversion of what we are meant to be. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me. The root of that word sin is haka, Hatha in the Hebrew. It means to miss, to miss the mark. You've probably heard that, that description of sin before. To miss the goal, to be off of the right path of righteousness that God has designed for us. And we know that that path is narrow. We know that, that that way of righteousness is difficult in this world. So it's easy to get off track. It's very easy to miss the mark. You know, if you've ever, if you've ever shot an arrow or, or been to a pistol range and done some target shooting, you know how easy it is to miss that mark. That's the same as our walk in this world. There are so many things that can take us off track, following the ways of the world will take us away from the ways of God. So we miss the mark often. We need to go back to God and ask for that restoration often. Then The next next aspect of David's prayer for forgiveness includes an admission of guilt and a recognition that although God forgives, we hold on to our sin. And I'm going to tell you why that's probably a good thing. Verse 3, it says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Why do I say that's a good thing, that we hold on to our sin? God forgives. He casts our sin into the depths of the ocean. As far as the east is from the west, He removes it from us. So God's already done His work of forgiveness when we repent. Why should we keep it before us? I think it's okay to remember the the feeling of shame, the feeling of separation that we have when we sin. I think it's okay that we keep our sin before us and replay the sense of guilt until you don't fall into that sin again. Because how many times is the sin that we commit repetitive sin? How many times is it something that we say we will never do again. And yet we go back to that. Why? Maybe because we've taken it away from us. Maybe it isn't before us. Maybe because we've we've cast it aside and sort of forgotten about it. And although God does, sometimes it's good until we've really, truly turned from that, that we keep it before us. So David says, I acknowledge it. And my sin is always before me. Verse 4 Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Well, now, David's saying, Against you I have sinned, you only. But that's not true. How about Bathsheba, who he committed adultery with? How about Uriah, her husband, who he. He connived into, into being killed. How about the lies that went along with all of that? So how can David say, against you, God, you only have I sinned. Well, because ultimately, ultimately, all sin is against God. Ultimately, all sin, although many times our sin has consequences with other people, our sin is truly against God. In Genesis 39, speaking of the, um, the, uh, the sin that Joseph was tempted by, it says, and it came to pass that after these things that the master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. We haven't gotten there yet on Wednesdays with Pastor Mike, but we will. And the master's wife said, lie with me. But he refused to And said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in this house. And he's committed all that he has to my hand. Joseph's saying, I have free reign in Potiphar's house to do whatever I want. I could do this evil and sin. But what does Joseph say? There is no one greater in this house than I. He admits it nor has he kept back anything for me but you, he's speaking to the master's wife, because you are his wife. And then, what does he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? Against God. So Joseph recognizes that even if he had fallen into that sin of adultery, it would not be as much against God Potiphar or Potiphar's wife, but it would be against God. And that's what David's saying. Against you, God, I have sinned. Against you only. That's, the, that's really the greatest result of our sin. Is that it's, it's against God. It's separation from Him. And then in verses 5 and 6, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, behold you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the inward part, you will make me to know wisdom. David is continuing now to look deep within his soul and to admit his propensity towards sin. You know, you know it, we, are, we do have tendency to sin. We are not generally good. We generally fall into sin. David realizes the rebellion that is present in the very core of his being. And he admits that God has given him the ability to know wisdom. And he admits his inability to cleanse himself. See, it's God who does the work. It's God who gives the wisdom. It's God who cleanses us from our sin as he forgives us. And then in verses 7-12, through David puts forth prayers for forgiveness and cleansing. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous Spirit. So again, we see here David. David's just, he's putting forth those prayers. Asking for forgiveness. Asking for cleansing. It says in 1 John 1, 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing. Sometimes we just feel dirty from our sin. How much we need to be made clean. So David is using a lot of different examples here about forgiveness and about clean cleansing. About being made pure again. Because truthfully, we can't have that right relationship with God unless we're clean before Him, unless we're, we're pure. So He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop, a plant it mentioned many times in the Old Testament. It's used for medicinal purposes and for religious purposes. A lot of times they would take the, the hyssop plant and they would dip it in the blood of the animal and they would put it on the altar, put it on the mercy seat, or they would put it on the doorposts of their home. They would use this plant according to the religious rituals in Exodus and Leviticus. So he's referring here to cleansing and atoning rites in the, in the Old Testament. He's praying for what? He's praying for purification. Because that's what those religious rituals identify with. Restoration, he's praying for. Restoration of his relationship with God. Purging is the removal of Or the eradication of something. So David is asking God to remove, completely remove his sin so he can be clean. And then washing, similar to purging, but contrasting the scarlet, stained color of sin with the purity of righteousness, white as snow, he says here. Those pictures that that we have that David mentions. He longs for the joy of a restored relationship as opposed to the distress of sin. And it affects him physically as well as spiritually, as well as emotionally. Sin can affect our whole being. When we hold to it, when we don't release it, when we don't ask for forgiveness, it can affect us. And he asks God to look away from his sin. You know how many times that... You know, we did something, or we said something. We just said, "Oh God, oh, turn away from that." I hope you didn't see that. I hope you didn't hear that, God. We just don't want him to hear or see our sin. So David is asking God to look away, and and that shame of our sin should bring us to the point where we can't stand knowing that God sees our sin, because sometimes we we just go about our Our days, and sometimes we fall into sin, and sometimes we may think that God doesn't know, but God doesn't see. He doesn't hear those words that come out of our mouth. But He does. And then He asks in verse 10 for the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. We can't do that alone. We need God, we need His Holy Spirit within us to renew us. To create a clean heart within us. And then David prays for God's presence. For God's presence. His joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because our joy is taken away when we don't have that relationship with God. It's God who brings joy to our life. It's God who who brings us an abundant life. And when we have that separation from Him, our joy is also taken away. So David's praying, Restore to me, God. The sense of Your presence. The joy of Your salvation. The sense of fellowship with You. Our joy dissipates when we sin. So David is praying for that to be restored. And then he vows to use the lessons of his sin and his repentance and God's forgiveness to teach others about God's mercy and His grace. In verses thirteen through fifteen, it says, "Then I will teach transgressors Your ways, and sinners shall be converted to You. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of Your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth sh- shall show forth Your praise." This is awesome. Because David takes the the sin that he committed and the forgiveness that God offers and he says, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to tell others about you. It's like a testimony. It's like our testimony to other people. It's like saying, you know, I was caught up in in this life, in this sin, in this lifestyle, whatever it is. And I, and I got to a place where I just came before God, I went down on my knees, I asked for his forgiveness, and he, he cleansed me. He restored a relationship with me. And when you tell people of your testimony of God's forgiveness, it, it's attractive to others. They want that too. They might not realize it right away, but sometimes they'll go home and they'll think about it and they'll say, wow, oh, maybe it's somebody that you knew from your past and they, and you've met recently. And they knew what your life was like before. They knew what you were into before. And they say, wow, oh, you're different. What happened? And you give them that testimony. And maybe it's a, another changed life someone else brought into God's family, because of that, because of what He's done in your life. Then in verses 16 and 17, David recognizes what God wants from any sinner. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give You, you do not desire delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So, what does God want from us? When He forgives, when He shows forth His grace, when He showers down His mercy upon us, when He restores that relationship, what does He want from us? Does He want sacrifice? No. He wants a continued broken heart. A broken heart for the things that God's heart breaks for. We should be in accord with Him over those things. And a contrite heart. What's a contrite heart? A contrite heart is a remorseful heart. A heart that's repentant. That's what God wants. That's all God wants from us. He doesn't need our sacrifice. He doesn't want, like in the Old Testament, it was a picture. The sacrifices, the burnt offerings, were all a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. He was the final sacrifice. No longer does God want that from us. Now as Christians, we go to Him and we, and we go to Him with a broken heart, with a contrite heart, with repentance in our heart. And that's what God wants from us. And then the last two verses here in 18 and 19, He moves from a personal prayer to a community prayer. He says, Do good in your, in your good pleasure to design it. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Our response to God's loving kindness should be acts of service unto Him. Acts of service. That's our sacrifice to God. Service to Him. Service to others. Humility and brokenness to God. Those are the things that He desires from us. And because He's so gracious, because He's so forgiving, how can we offer anything less than just take our heart? Use it. Allow me to be just uh, a blessing to others, to serve others because of what you've done in my life. So, a really uh, pretty intense psalm, Psalm fifty-one. When we get to the account in uh, in Second Samuel in a few weeks, and I'm sure we'll be there with Pastor Joe and we'll have a, a good understanding of what David eventually got to because of this. So um, give you a little perspective on that. Psalm fifty-two. Psalm fifty-two. Again, it corresponds to events of um, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapters 21 and 22, and a very trying time in David's life. So if you want to get better perspective on this psalm, you can go and you can read 2 Samuel 21 and 22. But just to give you a short version of that account, David was running from Saul, and we've seen that. You know, a lot throughout uh, the the accounts of First uh, and Second Samuel, he's running from Saul, running from King Saul, and he comes to the house of God, and, and uh, Ahimelech, the priest, is there, and Ahimelech asks David what he was doing in the house of God, and David lies to the priest, and you know, think about it, because the priest gave him something to eat; he actually gave him the the priestly bread, the show bread, and David lies to the priest and tells him that the king had sent him on a secret mission. Now see David was so caught up in self-preservation that he couldn't even think straight, that he just he just lied to Ahimelech. And he did this obviously to protect himself from Saul, because if if he if he asked the priest to swear not to Tell anyone where he was, then he wouldn't. So he probably was, he went into the house of God for, for shelter and food, and then he sort of drew the priest into his lie. Instead of, instead of you know, keeping him separate from him, he sort of drew him in. And the problem here is that David didn't trust in the Lord's protection. He was being pursued by Saul, and he just didn't trust that God was going to preserve him. And like many of us, during difficult times, David felt like he needed to help God out. That God wasn't doing enough for him, wasn't protecting him enough. He was running, he was in a desperate situation, and he felt like he just needed to help God out. So when King Saul found out that Ahimelech knew where David was, Saul accused Ahimelech of conspiracy. And he ordered that he be killed, and uh, not only the priest, but his entire household. Now, there's always somebody in the, in the government, in, in uh, close proximity to the leaders, whether it's the king or the president or a congressman, who's willing to do the bidding of that leader, to try to get on his good side. There's always going to be somebody who do that, and of course there was somebody to do that. Doeg the Edomite was willing to do this bidding for the king. He said that, you know, he was trying to make a name for himself in the king's eyes and he said, I'll, I'll carry out the slaughter of the priest and, and his, uh, his household. And he went so far in the slaughter. He killed Ahimelech, killed 85 other priests and all of their families. Now if you think about it, you know, you certainly are gonna blame King Saul who was pretty pretty evil at that point, and you can certainly blame Doeg the Edomite for the actual carrying out of the orders. But you can also put a little bit of the blame on David. You know, because it started off with him going into the house of, of God, going to the priest, lying to the priest, sort of Getting him involved in this lie. And it was all because he didn't trust God. David just didn't trust God. So he made a really bad decision. How often do we, when we're in a really difficult time, make really bad decisions? So we can certainly relate. So it it comes to this place now in this psalm. And David is seeking refuge in a cave. God wants us to seek refuge in him. But David sought refu- refuge in a cave. So, beginning in uh, in verse 1, we go and we read to verse 5. To the chief musician, a contemplation of David when Goed the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Elemon. So you see, it's laid out there in the title. We see that Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul where David was, and then Saul went and questioned the priest, and and the priest was uh, was uh, charged with uh, conspiracy against against the king. So in verse one it says, "Why do you boast in evil, Almighty Man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction." Like a sharp razor working deceitfully, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. Tough words by David. Directly to Doe. The Edomite, who committed death, the atrocities. And, you know, he doesn't take, David doesn't take any of the blame on himself. He really hits him pretty hard. You know, he says, Your tongue devises destruction. You know, those words that Dewey went to King Saul and told him about Ahimelech, that he, he was harboring David, a fugitive. And so David just goes right to him. Now, Doeg was a believer He didn't worship Yahweh. He had no fear of God. And David rightfully questions his character. He accuses him of loving evil more than loving good. Now, that's probably true, because he was really self-motivated. He had selfish reasons, reasons for what he did. He wanted to gain position and power within the government. So, he didn't care what the consequences were. So, David was right. He did love evil more than good. His own position and his name were more important than righteous actions. What do we do when faced with that choice? What do we do when there's an opportunity for advancement and maybe it takes some underhanded means to get there? What decision do we make? What choice do we make? So David's really giving us something to think about. Here. And then he speaks of righteous judgment that God has upon the wicked. And he uses the imagery of a tree, planted, and then being taken up. The judgment of God is threefold. It's taken away, it's plucked out, and it's uprooted. It's removed from its place. All Symbols of being judged. And then David contrasts the wicked and their end with the righteous in verses 6 and 7. It says, The righteous also shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is a man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and strengthened himself in his wickedness. We can glorify God because we know that he's going to righteously judge. But I don't know if we should laugh like it says here. The righteous self shall see and fear and laugh at him, laughing at the wicked. I know it's not God's desire to judge the wicked, but he needs to because he's righteous. It's, it would go against his nature, against his character if he didn't judge the wicked. But I think we should... Maybe hold back our arrogance in that because because take heed, the Bible says, when we think we stand lest we fall. You know, how many times we are maybe one step away from from falling also. So I'm not really sure if this is, uh, is something that we should follow, laughing at the wicked. But God will judge. God will judge. The fall of the wicked person is always connected to their lack in trusting Him. See, they trusted in their own strength. They trusted in their own uh, abilities, their own riches. We've spoken about that often throughout the Psalms, that David contrasts that characteristic of the, of the wicked versus the righteous. The righteous trust in God, the wicked trust in themselves. And then in verses eight and nine. The contrast of the, the tree that was uprooted in the previous verses, what does David say here? But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. See, now contrasting those that tree that was uprooted, that was plucked up and pulled away, David's deeply rooted. Where? In the house of God. Close to the source of life. The things of God. Like it says, we just learned in John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. It says a green olive tree in eight. In the house of God, fruitful, strong, alive. Why? Because it's planted deeply next to the source of life, God. So that's where we need to be. We need to always remain close to Jesus so that we we, remain fruitful in this life. And and we trust in Him. Because that's the source. That's where where we gain all of our ability to do anything. Without God, we can't do anything. So we stay close to Him. Then in Psalm 53. Psalm 53, if you want to go back to Psalm 14, you're going to see almost the exact same psalm. A lot of times, they're repeated. A few times throughout the psalms, it's, it's almost identical. So, I always think that if God repeats Himself, especially so exactly like He did, does here, that it's worthy of our attention. So, the psalm speaks of the fate of those who don't have a relationship with God. And it speaks to the foolishness of that line of thinking that, that, they, can, that they can exist apart from God. For those who say there is no God, even if they do good things, what the world sees as good, it's usually for selfish motives. And any good that we do as believers must be done to glorify God. And that's the difference. Because I know sometimes we can get caught up and we can say that, you know, there's a lot of people who do good in this world. I mean, we've seen it with the latest disasters. There's a lot of very charitable people, people that do good for others That just, you know, probably more than than many of us have been able to do. But what is the motivation behind that? Many times, not all the time, but many times it's to glorify themselves, to puff themselves up. It's selfish motives, Not to glorify God. Uh, Just turn with me to Matthew. I'm going to read four verses that that are important. To get perspective on this. Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 Part of the Sermon on the Mount part of Jesus' teachings to his disciples to teach them how to live, how to walk and how to think. Really what, what, what your motives are behind what you do not just what you do. So in verse 1 through 4 Take heed, Jesus says, that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. There's our motivation for doing anything good in this world. To glorify God and then allow Him to reward us. Not seeking reward from others. So, Again, the foolish is contrasted with those who trust in God. So, in verse 1 of Psalm 53, To the chief musician set to Mahalath a contemplation of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. None who does good. So, this verse addresses the nature of someone who disregards God. But the psalmist is also speaking, in general terms, regarding all men. Beneath the surface, like I mentioned in the last psalm, we all have a propensity, all a tendency towards sin. God's desire is to have people who consider him above everything else. In verses 2 and 3, he says, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are, there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. We see that in the book of Romans. There is none that does good, no, not one. That Pastor Vin is teaching through on Wednesdays. And in Isaiah 53:6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, our sin sent Jesus to the cross. And we all have sinned. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of God's glory. So, there's none that really escapes it. But the difference between a sinner uh, who knows God and a sinner who does not know God is that the one who does not know God will die in his sin, will be foolish because of that. The one who knows God and trusts in God and believes in God, we're still going to fall. We're still going to trip up from time to time. But we go back and we we pray for restoration. Verses 4 and 5 says, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? Then they are there they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Eventually, those who hate God will wind up fearing Him, because they see how God is with those who love Him. And their arrogance will actually turn to fear. says in verse 5, There they are in great fear where no fear was. Previously, they had no fear of God. They didn't think of God. They didn't care of God. Then they see how God's relationship with the believer is, and their arrogance turns to fear. Nothing was more humiliated, humiliating to a defeated army than to have the bones of the dead scattered over the land, rather than being buried with honor. And it says here that God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. They've become humiliated in the eyes of, of others. The, the wicked. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion, in verse 6, when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel will be, be glad. Speaking now of the coming Messiah, coming out of Israel, Jesus prophesied over over and over again throughout the Old Testament of, of His salvation and coming out of Zion. And so, here this psalm ends this way. Um, we're going to do Psalm 54 because it's only... Uh, seven verses, and we'll probably close door tonight. So Psalm 54. Um, praying for David is praying for justification and mercy, and he advances his claim to God's protection as a child of God. And we can do the same thing because we are children of God. We know that God will protect us, he'll provide for us, and um and this psalm this also speaks of those who come against the believer. And um, we all have ziphites in our life. We'll see what that means as we go through the psalm. The so, um, starting uh, at the beginning here, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. Again, if you want context, 1 Samuel 23 for this song. The Ziphites. Went to Saul and said, uh, We know where David is. There's always some that will come against you as a believer. Always. David, here in verse 1, is praying for salvation and he invokes God's name because God's name represents his character, it reflects his nature. Goodness and mercy are his nature. And then he prays for vindication and he invokes. God's strength. Our strength is limited. There's only so much that we can do in our own strength. God's strength is unlimited. So we should want to pray for God's vindication and His strength, not our own. And then in verse 3, David gives the reason for his opposition. Why? Why is he being opposed? Because they don't seek God. That's, the, that's really the main reason. A lot of times, our opposition will come from people just because we're believers and they're not. They don't seek God, they don't know Him, and they will come against you just because of your relationship with Him. David gives all the credit to God for his preservation. He also declares that God is with those who stand with God's people. And he expresses confidence in God. Verses 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all my trouble. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. So now David is fully moving from having his eyes on his enemies to having his eyes on God and this is four from seven. And I love that transition that he makes. He transitions from focusing on his problems to focusing on the solution to his problems and that's God. Like Peter who walked on the water when Jesus bit him out of the boat. When he focused on Jesus he was able to to accomplish great things. As soon as he focused on the storm, he sank. How how the same it is with us, when we focus on our troubles, when we focus on our problems, on the storms and the adversity in our life, it just seems to sort of feed upon itself. When we focus on the solution to our problems, when we focus on the one who's going to Preserve us, whether it's to take us out of it or to preserve us through. it. God can do that. When we focus on Him, we know He'll He'll preserve us, and we'll persevere through that. Whatever trial we're going through, we know that when we focus on God, that we'll make it through, and we'll glorify Him in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us tonight, Lord. How many